namo tassa pakawato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa pakawato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa pakawato arahato samma sambuddhasa putang tamang sankang namasa <coughs> So here we are once again, it's the new moon of July and it's the opositor night. So we gather together to do some chanting, sit in meditation, take precepts and uh, hear some reflections on the Dhamma. And uh, so the fickle finger of fate is pointed at me today, my turn to offer some reflections. And this is quite an unusual month, July, uh, because usually, uh, most years, in July we have the, one of our f festivals, the Asalha Puja festival, which falls on the full moon of July. But this year, it would have occurred two, about two weeks ago, but this year it's, it's, been, it's going to happen on the full moon of August. And this is because uh, we have this special year, it's called Adikamasa year, where there's an extra month. And so the extra month means that the Asala Puja is pushed back to August. So you'll be having uh, that particular festival celebration on the 1st of August. And the reason for this is that we, have, we operate both from a lunar calendar and a solar calendar. And at some point, these two get out of sync, so they have to bring them back uh, together again by having this year with an extra month. So that's, that's why, I, that explains why it's happening in August, very unusually this time. So anyway, I thought in tonight's uh, reflection, I would talk about three things mainly. Firstly, <coughs> misconceptions about Buddhism particularly from the world outside of Buddhism. And then misconceptions that can arise within the world of Buddhism. And finally, some aspects of the path of practice that might be of use, I hope. So those are the three main strands. So the reason I'm interested in this issue about misconceptions is because <clears throat> A few months ago, we had a contact made from the teachers in Luton. So Luton is a town not so far from here. And uh, they're the RE teachers. They're running the RE syllabus. And they've compiled a new syllabus. And they wanted someone in the, in the world of Buddhism to check that out, to see that, to verify what they're, they're saying is correct. So we had that contact, and then so I volunteered to have a look at this syllabus, because I used to work in education myself. So, <clears throat> so just to say a few things about this, so that the the syllabus itself is not finished. You know, it's a draft syllabus. It's it's on the way to, towards completion, and they will be making many amendments to it. They've said that. Also, the RE teachers are not, on the whole, specialist teachers. They're not people who just teach RE. They're people teaching other subjects, and they give some time to RE as well. And, you know, Luton itself is a famously multicultural, multi-faith kind of town. So you've got all sorts of uh, faith groups there. And uh, this particular syllabus deals, first of all, with the, if you like, the three main ones. They, or it's maybe four main ones. So the, the, the three main ones would be Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and then they also start talking about Hinduism. And later on in the, in the, in the course of the syllabus, they go into these rather um, minority faiths. So that would be Sikhism, Baha'i, and Buddhism. 
So anyway, this, as far as it seems to me, the syllabus is somewhat weighted in favor of Christianity, which is what you might expect. Of course, there's, there's Christian bias to it. We're still, in many ways, a Christian country. That's the majority religion, uh, even though there are many different kinds of Christian uh, churches. <clears throat> but they, they're doing their best to try understand, to understand other faiths, uh, other religions, because it's a difficult job. You've got to teach religion across all these boundaries and ethnic uh, differences and so forth, get something across of all these religions. So I, I think they're making their, their best effort. Um, but I thought I would read you some excerpts from the syllabus and then talk a little bit about it um, afterwards. So first of all, let's look at aspects from a Christian angle, what they're talking about. So this is, my, to my mind, the main drift of the syllabus. Why do Christians believe that Jesus was God on earth? What's so radical about Jesus? What do people believe about God? and the universe? What arguments do theists offer to support their vision of God as the creator of life? How do atheists account for the beauty, love, order, or grandeur of the earth and humanity? Do prophets still influence us today? So remember, this is advice not to students, this is to the teachers, how to possibly present this subject. Explore a philosophical approach. How can a good God allow suffering? Many people argue that God cannot be good or that God does not exist. Should Christians be greener than everyone else because of their beliefs about God, creation and stewardship? And this last one is a little bit odd. It's talking about inviting someone into the class. It says, invite a humanist in to talk about being godless, happy humanists. I'll come back to that one. So then we move on to Buddhism. So this is unit 3.11. We're getting into territory that's a bit more familiar. Why is there suffering in the world? Are there any good solutions? So number eight, explore Buddhist explanations of the suffering as dukkha or discontentment, the first noble truth. So the translation of dukkha is discontentment. We cause discontentment through craving, the second noble truth. Look for examples of how craving brings discontentment in the lives of individuals. How far does this reflect students' own experience? Find out about the Buddhist solution to suffering, cessation of craving, tanha, through following the middle way. How does the wheel of life offer a map to escape the jaws of dukkha? Consider how far humans are responsible for causing discontentment and overcoming it. I'll come back on some of this. And then this is an interesting one. <clears throat> Ask students to summarize each religious teaching. So they're going around the class asking the students to give a quick summary on, on the different religions. And then they give an example here. Old Testament. Behave well and trust God. New Testament, get your hands dirty, follow Jesus. Buddhism, stop wanting what you cannot have. Stop wanting what you cannot have. Next unit, should happiness be the purpose of life? Buddhism, Explore the unsatisfactoriness of life, dukkha. Find out whether the teachings of the Buddha can be understood as, above all, a search for happiness through relinquishing the hold that craving has on us. 
Would students define this as happiness or something else? Number 12, explore the Dhamma, the key teachings of the Buddha, and the impact these have on Buddhists today. So they, they give three, uh, three little offerings here. Three universal truths. By that they mean the characteristics of existence, life as suffering dukkha, and how this may be alleviated, the Four Noble Truths. And the third one, the, the Noble Eightfold Path. Explore what differences these ideas make to everyday life for Buddhists. For example, connect Buddhist ideas about suffering with the practices of compassion, meditation, and vegetarianism. So, <clears throat> In those particular paragraphs, they're touching into things that we're familiar with. They might be coming into a different angle or in a slightly different way, but we're fairly familiar with some of that territory. But the next two did excite sort of comment from myself, which I wrote back to them about. So number 14, compare Buddhist ethics with humanist ethics. Is Buddhism an early form of humanism? Is Buddhism an early form of humanism? And they put in brackets, the answer is complex, but must allow people to identify for themselves. And finally, this is the, uh, the humdinger for me. Okay, so the last one. Investigate what it is about Buddhism that makes it attractive to Westerners. It is, in some ways, the UK's most successful religion at proselytizing or winning converts or gathering new followers analyze how it is marketed and used in marketing. Evaluate whether its interpretation as a philosophy and as non-theistic makes it acceptable, quotation marks, to a secular media or society. So I've read through those because I think it's very interesting how in any particular religious frame, if we are committed to it, it's very difficult to really understand another religion. Um, and, and in particular, I think it's, it's very difficult for, for teachers who are part-time teachers of RE, uh, perhaps to understand Buddhism if they've never come across it, uh, never directly experienced it. Um, and we can see in some of those um, pieces of advice that you know, if you haven't experienced any meditation, if you haven't uh, experienced any sensitization of the mind to how the heart of the mind works, then you're taking the words like craving and discontentment and so on in a certain way and using them in a certain way, which to us sounds a bit strange. And also there's questions about, you know, we have a, the background of some kind of understanding of dependent origination, which also has an influence in some of what they've been talking about. So for those teachers, all of that is absent. They have to try to make sense of what they've heard about Buddhism. Uh, and on top of that, in, in Britain today, we have the, all the schools of, rep, of Buddhism represented, many different aspects, many different ways of doing things. So within this syllabus, they talk about making sand mandalas, What's the purpose of that? You can talk about Zen koans. You can talk about, if you want, chanting to get what you want. You could talk about uh, believing in Amitabha and the Pure Land. All of this falls under Buddhism, doesn't it? So it can be a very confusing picture for them. So I don't blame them or criticize them at all uh, for the efforts they've made. And how, can, how well can I do, say, with Christianity or another religion? You know, I'm, I'm not so well educated myself. However, I will try to look at this aspect of understanding another religion because I think it can be quite useful to try to put yourself in the place of a different religion and understand where they're coming from. And in fact, in the early years of Amaravati, Lumpur Samedo seemed to want to do this he was opening up the retreat center to different groups. We had a group of people called the Brahma Kumaris stay for about a week. Was it two weeks some, at some point? Thich Han came here and taught in the retreat center. 
And uh, in the early 90s, Lung Po himself um, uh, hosted a conference, uh, which was an interfaith conference in the old sala that we had. And it was called Faith in Awakening. And many, many people came, many different representatives of different faiths. And uh, over two days, they shared a lot. So I think a lot of useful discussions were held. And indeed, it was um, even reported on the news in the media in Britain that all these religions had gotten together at this place called Amravati and were talking to each other. So that was seen as very hopeful and positive and so forth. So, I mean, f as I understand it, and I'm always open to correction, but for Christians, the most important thing is God. God is the source of all goodness. God is the creator. Uh, you know, without God, there is nothing kind of thing. You, you relate to God as the be-all and the end-all, or the relationship with God is the most important part of your whole religious life. And Jesus Christ was God incarnate on earth for a brief lifetime. So I have a friend, she's a part-time vicar in the Church of England, and her version is God is love. God is love. Her name is Anne. So I never question this. I never ask her um, what about the other emotions that humans experience. Is, is God that as well? Because I don't want to upset her or offend her. But if you, if you come from a religion where God is the center of it all, you know, the source, if you like, the creator, the, the fount of all goodness, and you come to something like Buddhism, which, you know, there's no, apparently no God here. Um, what's it all about? Uh, it looks very bleak. It talks about suffering all the time. <laughs> it must be very difficult to understand. And that is why I think they were identifying Buddhism with humanism. Because within the British context text, that makes sense. You know, it's the nearest thing they must have thought. It's human-centric. It talks about uh, how humans relate to each other and so on. So they will have come up with that particular idea, which I was keen to challenge. Their idea of suffering so they were mentioning, mentioning suffering in the syllabus. So where does suffering come from, or why is there suffering according to Christianity? As far as I can understand, it is to do with sin. So because man, or Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, they were asked to leave, or told to leave, the Garden of Eden. And so from a sort of paradisical kind of uh, place where they were, everything was easy and fine, they went out into the world which is full of dukkha, difficulty. And it's because human beings have sinned. So this is the origin of suffering, I think, from a Christian point of view. And I was trying to think, um, what, is, what is the great benefit of belief in God for someone who does believe in this? And of course, we don't rule this kind of thing out in Buddhism. We don't take a hard stance. But I think it's this, that if you think about uh, human beings, we're difficult, we're um, awkward, there's lots of suffering in relating to other people, we, disapp we disappoint each other, uh, people misunderstand each other. But if you can turn to this source you call God and communicate with that, and tell your truth to that, and then sort of receive love from that source, then it recharges you, your batteries, and you can turn to face all these difficulties and imperfections, what we would call dukkha. However, um, there is a flip side to belief in God. You know, if, this, if this sustains you and keeps you going, 
and if your faith starts to, to, to weaken, um, the, the flip side to it is if you experience tremendous suffering or you witness a lot of suffering or you find out you know, this, if God is the source of all goodness to you and yet you see things happening around you uh, that you know, seem to indicate something else, then your faith will begin to be affected. And this personal relationship with God seems to be very, very important to Christians. So I'll give you one little incident from my past on this. Uh, this was before I became a monk. So I was walking in the countryside in Surrey, just south of Greater London, and I came across this very attractive-looking church. I went inside the church, and the church had some tapestries or wall hangings which were very interesting to me. So I was having a look at these. So I wasn't intending to eavesdrop on a conversation or anything like that. But as I was looking at the tapestries, so this conversation started up and it was happening behind some screens or pews or something. I couldn't see the people, but it was one woman talking to another woman. And this woman was saying that she felt that God didn't want her to go out with a particular man. Um, that he was warning her that this wasn't the right course of action for her. So I listened, I was kind of amazed to hear this, and that God would, it was so personal that he would take an interest in her and advise her about her, her love life. So anyway, if you, if you do experience some kind of a trauma or you experience tremendous suffering, that's when your faith in the goodness of God will, will perhaps begin to uh, be threatened. So there, I'll give you three examples of this. That in, in the 18th century, in 1755, there was a huge earthquake off the coast of Portugal. And um, the city was very badly affected. There was also a tsunami that came up the river, Tagus. Something like 85% of the buildings collapsed or were demolished by the earthquake. Not only that, it was All Saints Day and a Sunday. So all people, all the people, or most of them, were in the churches in Lisbon at the time. And in those days, the churches were illuminated with candles, no electricity. So you can imagine these buildings were collapsing all over the place. And then with the candles lit, um, there were fires all over the city from that. Something like they reckoned about 40,000 people were probably killed, which was a huge number in those days. And then news of this spread across Europe, and that's when people began to have some doubts about God. It, it sort of promoted that kind of doubt about God. Or another example was 16 Carmelite nuns. Now, the Carmelites were a closed order and this was the time of the French Revolution and the terror, the worst period, if you like, of the revolution. And so people, representatives of the revolution, visited these nuns and required them to abjure their faith and to renounce their belief in God and so forth. And the sisters refused to do this. And the, the, the mother abbess said, well, we, we shall have to, you know, take the path of... Um, of martyrdom, and they all agreed with her. So they, in fact, the, in the end they did, they were taken to the guillotine, and they were singing hymns as they went, and uh, te deums, and each one was guillotined. But the, the main point of this is that the previous abbess had lost her faith in God, and the reason for this was she suffered terribly from a kind of physical illness, and all the suffering was so great for her that she lost her faith can you imagine that? The abbess of the convent or whatever lost her faith. So the, the new abbess came in and she was the one that led them on their path of martyrdom to the guillotine. And uh, only two weeks ago uh, in South London, there was an incident. There were some children outside a primary school having a tea, something like that. Um, a farewell, possibly, tea uh, for the end of term. And then a car drove into that area and plowed into the people, knocking about 16 people off their feet and so on. And out of that incident, uh, two little girls of eight both died. 
one on the scene, I think, and one eventually in hospital. So this is the kind of incident, you know, what, why a Christian might ask themselves, well, why was it uh, these innocent girls were plowed into by this car? How could that happen? What had they done to deserve that fate? So, what's interesting is that this word faith, I think it's very different as between Christianity on one hand and, and Buddha Dhamma on the other. Uh, we, we use this word faith as interchangeable with religion. So we talk about the faiths in Luton. And yet possibly the word faith is not such a good word for, for the religion we're part of. But in Christianity and Islam and so forth, or the theistic religions, faith, particularly Christianity, faith is the most important thing of all. So if you do believe in God, you do believe in Christ as his son, and you believe that you will be saved and so on, this is what will save you. Faith is, at least in many Christian traditions, the most important thing of all. Whereas in this particular practice, in Buddha Dhamma, faith is, not, is there, but it's not so important. So it's one of five different spiritual faculties. So the faculties are faith, um, energy or persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So faith is seen to be one of these important factors among those five. And I remember coming, when I first came to, to be interested in Buddhism and I was hearing talks, I understood that faith, or sada, as we call it, um, is like a, uh, if you go to a town and you want to get to a particular place, like a cinema or a church, you approach somebody and you say, could you, could you give me some directions? And they give you directions. And then you follow those, you have enough trust to follow those directions and get to that particular building. And that was what I was told, uh, sada is in Buddhism. So I've accepted that more or less. But over the years, as I look back, I realize that faith is uh, quite a crucial element in any practice of religion. Uh, because what faith can enable you to do is to take a step into the unknown that you might not otherwise do. If you have faith in the Enlightenment, in the teachings of the Buddha, possibly in Lumpur Cha or Ajahn Sumedho, or other great teachers, then this uh, can give you the, the courage or the determination to carry out their instructions. So faith enables you to take steps uh, into the dark, or take a leap into the dark, or take steps into the unknown that otherwise you might not be prepared to do. So I see it has, uh, having great value on that level. But still, it's nothing like what faith is in Christianity in terms of its importance. So what about misconceptions from inside the world of Buddhism? And the reason I'm going to talk about these is because there were two particular incidents that impacted on me and um, I regret to say I wasn't able to respond in the right way on each occasion. Um, I wish I had been able to, but I wasn't. So I, I didn't give very good responses or replies in these particular situations. So anyway, the first one was I was already a monk walking in the suburbs of South London where I grew up, and I was approached by a Vietnamese woman, and we sort of exchanged details and so on, and eventually she invited me to a meal in her home in this place called Wallington, and uh, she had two children and a husband. So very nice uh, home and a nice meal. She asked me to talk to her son, so I was having a chat with him about various things. But there's one thing she said, which was, Buddhism has wonderful ideas, but you can't actually do them. It's got fantastic you know, ideals, if you like, but you can't put them into practice. And I was quite shocked, you know, I thought, well, obviously this is wrong, you know. But, like, 
But I wasn't, I, somehow I didn't come back on, her, um, on that remark properly. I just let it go. But I have heard people over the years, even some members of the Sangha, saying something somewhat similar. Buddhism has great you know, ideas and possibilities, but you can't actually do it, or you can't fulfill these things. So what I would say in relation to this question is, you know, if, you're, if you compare it to the, the, the mountains and the foothills, if you're standing in the foothills and you look at the mountain peaks and you think, oh, I'm supposed to be up there, it looks just about impossible. There's so far to go and so much climbing to be done. It's just impossible. But if you get further into the mountains and you're halfway up a mountain, it doesn't look so impossible at all. It's doable. So if you have someone at the beginning of the path and they're beginning to learn about you know, meditation techniques or sila, or maybe dana and so on, and then you suddenly talk to them about emptiness or some other very profound topic, they're not going to be ready to, to take that on board. They're simply not in the right place. And it will seem to be, you know, an impossible ideal. So, <clears throat> obviously, what you do, what you need to do, and remember, the, the Buddha uh, taught a graduated path. It wasn't just one. It wasn't do it do it all in one go. It was a graduated path for people in the place where they were at. And we know that he walked up and down the, plain, the basin of the Ganges River. He was teaching so many different kinds of people. And each time he was trying to suit the teaching to the needs of that particular person and the level that they were at, what, what they would benefit from. So we call this upaya, or skillful means. If you can uh, access the right skillful means at the right particular time, or, or the right place on the path, then you can overcome the problems you're currently facing. So sometimes maybe you can access upaya or skillful means from your own understanding or insights. But sometimes you have to talk to a teacher or a more experienced practitioner, someone who's been there before. The classic uh, instance for us is of Lumpur Cha going to see Ajahn Mun. So there was something, he'd been traveling through Thailand on Tudong, he'd practiced in many different places, charnel grounds and monasteries, and been with many different teachers, but there were some certain questions he couldn't find the answer to. I remember Lumpur Cha was an incredibly uh, conscientious monk, it seemed to me from looking at the collected works of Lumpur Child that he was frightened of two things. One was doing wrong, and the other was death. But he wasn't frightened of other things. Anyway, he trekked through the jungle to get to this very remote monastery where Ajahn Mun lived, and then stayed about three nights. And when he got to properly talk to Ajahn Mun, he put the problem to him. He said, my practice is, I'm not sure about the foundation of my practice, I'm stuck. Um, and he said, I've read this Visuddhimagga, this path of purification written by a famous monk many centuries ago. And all the details are so, there's so much detail and there's so many rules and how can anyone possibly remember this or relate to this? Uh, it's just impossible. I don't see how I can remember all those rules and keep them all. So Ajahn Mun listened, and then he said something like this. He said, uh, yes, well, it does seem to be an awful lot if you read that particular work, but in the end it comes down to something quite small, simple. And that is, remember that this code has come from the human mind. But you can train the mind in hiri and otapa, so shame and fear of wrongdoing. The mind can be trained in shame and fear of wrongdoing. And if you do that, then you will be cautious, you will be restrained, naturally. And you don't need to remember all those rules. Having to remember all those rules will be burden, would be burdensome, but 
mainly if you can remember or come back to the, the problem of in what ways have you, what faults have you committed? What things have you done wrong? Can you admit them? Can you accept them? So this was the upaya, this was the skillful means that really lifted a, a weight from Lung Po Cha's back, from his shoulders. It was only a very brief visit, but he turned around, he walked out of that monastery with his friends after the three days, and he knew what to do now. He knew how to you know, fulfill the, the, the practice path that led him on to his becoming a famous teacher, uh, establishing his own monastery and becoming a famous teacher. So it's the right means at the right moment, finding that. Maybe we can't, from our own background or insight, find the upaya that we need at any particular moment, but maybe we can. Maybe we can talk to someone else and talk about the problems that we face. The second uh, incident about uh, misconceptions uh, from within the world of Buddhism, uh, again another incident, this was many years ago, I was relatively junior and doing a, a small tudong in the southwest with the Nanagarika and we ended up in, or we went to Totnes, which is a kind of open-minded, spiritually inclined town in the southwest where many people do support things like Buddhism. Anyway, we were staying with a, a couple there and I was invited to go to the Totnes meditation group or Buddhist group, whatever it was, and to uh, give a little talk there. So I, I must admit, I wasn't very experienced at all, um, but I went there and gave some kind of input. And then towards the end of the evening, um, a gentleman came up in front of me, and he was obviously an experienced, very experienced practitioner, and he put this question to me. He said, so you think that because you're on 227 precepts, that you're superior to people who are on only eight or five? And I was quite staggered by this uh, question and unable to answer very successfully at the time at all. Um, so maybe there are some monks or, I don't know, who, who are proud or arrogant because they're on 227 precepts, but I haven't met many myself. Uh, if we are on precepts, it's because we've, uh, we've got the ability to commit to those precepts. We're not working in the world. Uh, we have a, a different kind of existence here. And with those precepts, uh, if they're properly kept and observed, then we're likely to make uh, faster progress along the path. But so is someone on eight precepts or on five precepts. It doesn't matter the number of precepts, it's how you keep them or how you, how you observe them, how you um, contemplate, how you're developing and so forth. So that would be my response to him that, that today, that if, you know, it, it, the, the idea that anyone would be proud or feel superior because they're on a greater number of precepts seems strange to me. It's more how you do that, how you see that particular training and whether you carry it out. And so the, the last uh, thread I'd like to look at is, is um, practice and what might be able to help some people uh, uh, in the path of practice, particularly when they come up against difficulties and problems. So the first aspect I'd like to talk about is taking on challenges. So all of us, whether we're in the lay life or the monastic life, we have um, fears, we have senses, a sense of inadequacy, there are things we don't really want to get into because we feel we can't handle them. But remember that um, Understanding, well, uh, overcoming suffering or the end of suffering doesn't come from running away from it. As Long Paul Sumedha would put it, um, you need to understand suffering. Sometimes he would say to stand under suffering. 
So it may be that we're, you know, that there are many difficult, difficult roles and jobs in the monastic life. Maybe some lay people think, oh, it's an easy life. They don't have to go to work and uh, they don't have to pay tax and all the other, they don't have to commute and all the rest of it. And this is, there's a lot of truth in that. But also, there's a lot of difficulty in the life as well. It's a life of training. And uh, they're always, it's always bringing up a new challenge, something else you have to face. Uh, so it might be a role or responsibility. Some of the roles or responsibilities in the monastery are uh, well known as being hot. For example, transport coordinator, uh, kitchen manager or kitchen, the person in charge of the kitchen. And there's things like work monk, work nun, where you have to organize a lot of people. These are quite difficult roles. But you might even be intimidated by you know, becoming health and safety officer, having to look after fire safety, uh, maybe having to talk to the public, having to teach meditation, or having to offer a talk. Any of these roles, jobs, or whatever you call them, uh, can be intimidating and can, uh, you know, create a sense of inadequacy. So what do we do with that? Do we constantly try to evade these things or is there a, a better way that we, we try to come forward and uh, take on these responsibilities? Sometimes we will fail. So failure is, you know, part of life, isn't it? And... Um, I think one thing we can really trust in is that failure can be the seedbed for, for later success. You can learn through failure. You don't get things right the first time. You have uh, insights to put them into practice next time around. So failure isn't necessarily a disaster. And the classic case, again, in our tradition is Lung Po Cha asking Ajahn Sumedho to mount the high seat and give a talk in Thai. Now, he knew that Lung Po Ajahn Sumedho did not want to give talks in Thai. He was really resistant to it. But he was invited to get up on the high seat and give this talk. So Ajahn Sumedho started, and he started in Thai, and he was doing quite well, and it was an hour went by. And then Lung Po Cha says... Now another hour. So then uh, Ajahn Tomato gamely plows on as best he can in Thai. And of course, as it goes on, because he's only got limited Thai, you have to keep repeating yourself. And then Ajahn Chah says, one more hour. Many, a number of lay people by this time are leaving on their way home. So Ajahn Tomato plows on for yet another hour. Um... And by the end of it, uh, he said he lost his fear of speaking in public in Thai. So, quite a teaching. So, taking on these challenges and trying to, face, to you know to 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 fulfil them is a, a way of growing. Uh, if, we, if we constantly try to evade them or get out of them, then this is like um, almost trying to, perhaps not giving ourselves the chance to grow and to develop in the practice. So that's one aspect. And the second aspect is about insight and intuition. Because um, all of us, we, we're all different. We operate in different ways. And so some people might think, well, if I look at the Eightfold Path, there's right understanding or right view, right intention, and then right speech, right action. If I've understood properly uh, right view, right, right understanding, then I will be able to do or fulfill right action. But things aren't always so logical, are they? Or rational or set up in those ways. We're human beings. And so often we reach within the heart or mind for things that aren't necessarily part of that rational uh, procedure. So insights arise. 
particularly under pressure. And it's often those insights that will be the things that move you forward. So the, we have the conscious mind and there's the subconscious. And at certain times, the subconscious will, will give us the answers if we can listen to them, if we're able to pick up on what they're saying, what these voices are saying. And sometimes it means just playing with things. It's not rational, it's not adult, it's just like you're playing with things and then maybe it come, you, some kind of answer comes. And there's a, an inc a famous incident of this because the, the, the famous, well-known anyway, Tibetan, I think, nun called Tenzin Palmo, she was in her cave somewhere in the Himalayas, I guess, and there was an, a huge amount of snow falling and she was trapped in the cave. So masses of snow all around the cave and she realized that inside the cave there was only a limited amount of air and there was no way that other air could come in. So she began to make preparations for her own death. But something in her, some intuition came up and, and said, you know, take this stick and, and see if you can bore through the snow. And she started boring through the snow. It went on for about an hour or two or more. But eventually something ha happened and there was fresh air coming in through that hole. And she just did that on some kind of intuition. It's a feeling that maybe if I just do this, boring through the, the snow, maybe it will help. And on a less sort of a, on a more mundane note, there was a famous climber mountain climber called Joe Simpson and he and his friend uh, were climbing in the Andes and they, they were doing incredibly dangerous things and the weather became very bad and at some point Simpson drops uh, I think Yates the friend was holding him and Simpson drops and then breaks his leg that's the first thing that happened and then they were uh, trying to get down from the mountain Yates was, would lower him over an edge over, over an edge with a rope, and he, they went down a series of uh, descents in that way. But finally, the weather's got very, very bad. Um, Yates is holding onto the rope. He doesn't know where, exactly where Simpson is. He can't even hear him because of the storm, the noise in the storm. And he realizes, I can't hold this anymore. Uh, I know, I'll be pulled to my death. And in the end, he cuts the rope. Um, and when he looks over the edge, he, he realizes, oh, Simpson was above a crevasse. So he's gone straight down into a crevasse. Uh, so Simpson lands with his broken leg on a kind of ledge. And he's obviously unconscious for a while and then finally comes to. And then he realizes, well, if I just lie here, I'm going to die. So I've got to go down further. And somehow he sets up the rope. He goes onto the rope with his broken leg. He's going down the rope and then he comes to the end of the rope. And then the intuition says to him, I've just got to go. You know, either it's, I'm dead now or something good will happen. So he just lets go of the rope. He just falls another two or three feet and he's on ground. He's on some kind of stable ground. And then he realizes there's a shaft of light coming down from a particular corner and he, he just works his way up towards that shaft of light course with his broken leg so again that was intuition it was feeling it wasn't rationality that this was going to save him now those are particularly extreme circumstances but uh, you know in our own practice when we come up against difficulties and problems often it's that intuitional sense which will help us to surmount them or to to make progress But if we are uh, at a period of um, great difficulty or uh, aridity in the practice, things aren't seem to be going well, uh, we're not quite sure what we should be doing, and nothing seems to make sense to us, there is a piece of advice which I can sort of recommend to you, and that is, uh, it's within the suttas, 
when the Buddha gives um, advice in brief to his foster mother, Mahapajapati, the Gotamid, she was, as I say, the woman who brought him up, not, the, not his mother, but also the first bhikkhuni, celebrated as the first bhikkhuni. And it's at some point where the Buddha is about to go away for a while, and she goes to see him, and she says, Lord, could you please give me a teaching in brief that I can remember about Dhamma and Vinaya? Because when you're away, I, you know, I won't be able to, to ask you, uh, or won't be able to hear your, your, your talks. So the Buddha offers this piece of advice. He says, if, <clears throat> if you're cultivating qualities which lead towards passion, being fettered, accumulating things, self-aggrandizement, um, what else is there? Laziness, being a burden on others, uh, being fettered, I think we've done that already. Anyway, these various qualities, going in that direction, if you're going in that direction, this is not Dhamma, this is not Vinaya, this is not the word of the teacher. But if you are cultivating qualities which lead towards dispassion, not being fettered, renunciation, not accumulating things, Not aggrandizing yourself, in other words, being easily satisfied. Um, not laziness, but energy. Not being a burden on others. Not becoming entangled with people, but practicing in seclusion. And one other factor I can't remember. But if you practice qualities that lead in that direction, then you are in accordance with Dhamma, that is in accordance with Dhamma, that is in accordance with Vinaya, that is the word of the teacher. So keep going in that direction. So she takes that brief advice, that brief teaching, and puts it to use. So if ever there is confusion in the heart about what's the right way to go, try to remember that, that piece of advice, and it may be of use. So I hope overall this is of some use, and I offer these thoughts for your consideration tonight. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu.